This is the Josh Hammer Show. Heads up here, we are going to dive into some material that if you have a children in the car, you might want to exercise some parental caution. So this past week, there was a huge hearing in the U.S. Senate on the question of big tech and child sexual exploitation. It was really just a hearing about big tech in general. Some of the senators there on the Judiciary Committee got into questions pertaining to Section 230 and various other public policies about the question of big tech. And you had Mark Zuckerberg there. You had the CEO of TikTok there, a number of other witnesses as well. This this hearing got a lot of headlines. There were, there were a lot of exchanges that went viral in the news cycle there. We want to play for you this one exchange that definitely went viral between Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook and now the CEO of Meta, which is what the Facebook Instagram, WhatsApp, Blob is now known as Meta. So this is an exchange between Mark Zuckerberg and Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Let's take a listen. Instagram's own algorithm was promoting the discoverability of victims for pedophiles seeking child abuse material. In other words, this material wasn't just living on the dark corners of Instagram. Instagram was helping pedophiles find it by promoting graphic hashtags including hashtag ped whore and hashtag preteen sex to potential buyers. Instagram also displayed the following warning screen to individuals who were searching for child abuse material. These results may contain images of child sexual abuse. And then you gave users two choices, get resources or see results anyway. Mr. Zuckerberg, what the hell were you thinking? All right, Senator. Um, the, the, the basic science behind that is that when people are searching for something that is problematic, it's often helpful to, rather than just blocking it, to help direct them towards something that, um, that could be helpful for getting them to get help. In, in what I also, understand, get resources. In what sane universe is there a link for see results anyway? Well, because we might be wrong. We, we try to trigger this, this uh, warning, or we tried to, um, when we think that there's any chance that the results Okay, you might be, might be wrong. Let me ask you, how many times was this warning screen displayed? I don't know, but the... But the hey, you don't know. Why don't you know? I, I, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. But well, the, You know what, Mr. Zuckerberg? It's interesting you say you don't know it off the top of your head, because I asked it. In June of 2023, in an oversight letter, and your company refused to answer. Will you commit right now to within five days answering this question for this committee? We'll follow up on that. Is that a yes? Not a will follow up. I know how lawyers write statements saying we're not going to answer. Will you tell us how many times this warning screen was displayed? Yes or no? Senator, I'll personally look into it. I'm not sure if we have. Okay, so you're refusing to answer that. So this is Ted Cruz at his very best. For those who have forgotten because he's been in the Senate a little while, he's actually up for re-election this fall. Ted was one of the most prolific appellate litigators in the country prior to becoming a U.S. senator. He was the Solicitor General of Texas from 2003 to 2008. Actually, back in 2020, I worked very closely with him on, on the book he wrote that year, a book that was about his legal experience and the court and all of that more generally. So this, this is Cruz at his best, really 
asking questions as, as a good cross-examining lawyer ought to. And it's disgraceful. It is absolutely disgraceful that this dweeb, this utter dweeb, and that is what Mark Zuckerberg is. He is a dork and a half, a loser of the highest magnitude who somehow managed to strike it rich and had and had a great a great idea. And, you know, credit where credit is due. Isn't, isn't capitalism a great thing that you can just have one idea and then be worth billions and billions and oodles of dollars there? But it does raise this really profound question as to, are these platforms actually a means to societal and human flourishing, or are they a means to societal and individual misery? There was a separate exchange, which we're not going to play for you. You can go ahead and find it yourself. There's a separate exchange between Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, and Mark Zuckerberg as well. Hawley, a, another former prolific attorney who also showed his skills there, he actually got Mark Zuckerberg to apologize to personally apologize to the parents who were in that hearing, who were sitting in the gallery, whose children had been the victims of online child sexual exploitation. He got Mark Zuckerberg to apologize. Josh Hawley now is working on filing legislation that would give those individuals or their parents a private right of action to file a lawsuit against the tech platforms itself. That's exactly the sort of creative, conservative, plaintiff bar sort of litigation that I think that the so-called new right more generally really ought to embrace. Good legislation. I hope that it passes. But getting back to this deeper question here as to technology. Look, I, I think from one vantage point, there is one view of the world that says these companies are creating a lot of jobs. They're good for the GDP. They're good for this metric or that metric or this. That, that is not the conservative way of viewing the world. That is an ultra-materialistic, robotic, maybe fringe, Ayn Randian, libertarian, perhaps, way, you might say, of viewing the world. The, the conservative views everything through the prism of what maximizes substantive justice, doing best what is good for those who are good and doing bad to those who deserve bad the common good of the society, and human flourishing in the true sense of the term. We have ample empirical data now at this point for years and years to show the historical rates at which, at which millennials and Gen Z and really teenage girls in particular are facing rates of depression rates of confusion, and tragically, even rates of suicide at rates that no previous generation of young girls had previously experienced. I remember just last year reading a story about this girl in the UK over in Britain who ended up killing herself after she was body shamed or something like that on her Instagram page. And that's an anecdotal example, but there actually is a lot of evidence on this particular problem as well. And unless you take that cartoonish, materialistic view of the technology companies, then you have to intuit and understand that the statesman's role, the lawmaker's role in a situation like this is to put guardrails on these actors these actors, by the way, that call themselves private actors, they don't really act like private actors. That's the whole Missouri versus Biden litigation, a massive, massive Supreme Court case that will get decided 
in just a few months now. That's the collusion between the Biden administration and the big tech oligarchs when it comes to COVID-19 speech, 2020 election-related speech, and so forth. In any event, the statesman's prerogative is to put guardrails around companies and actors like this to channel them in a way that most conduces to human flourishing. Such legislation might strike some as heavy-handed, but you heard Mark Zuckerberg there. He has no idea what's going on in his own company. We need more hands-on regulating of these companies. That's to say nothing, of course, of the online smut and pornography epidemic out there. I mean, look, if you think that the pornography industry is increasing GDP in the San Fernando Valley, therefore it's good. I mean, dude, not how it works. GDP, job creation, it's not everything. It is not the end-all be-all as to why we engage in Republican self-governance and try to chart our own destiny in this country in the first place. We're here for deeper ends. These companies are robbing this nation's children of their innocence and their youth. TikTok being the single worst example, Instagram a close second. We believe in capitalism, not crapitalism. It's time to regulate that as such. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The Middle East is absolutely on fire. Three dead Americans at the Tower 22 military base in the far northeastern corner of Jordan. Dozens more wounded. Over 170 and counting attacks against U.S. military bases in the region, primarily in Iraq and Syria, since the Hamas pogrom of October 7th, 2023. The situation in Yemen with the Iran-funded Houthi rebels is Hardly any better. In fact, if anything, it is worse. Earlier this past week, a missile launched from the Houthis got so close to a U.S. Navy ship where that ship's missile defense systems actually failed. And at the very last minute, the fail-safe mechanism, the literal Gatlin gun, shot down the missile, thus barely, barely averting what would have otherwise been an absolute catastrophe. To make matters even worse, the United States is purported number one ally in the region, their actual number one ally under the Trump administration, 
But the purported ally under this current administration, the effective third term of the Barack Obama presidency as it is, that would be Israel. Israel is currently achieving many of its military aims in Gaza. Per IDF reporting, they have captured in large part Khan Yunus, the second largest city in Gaza after Gaza City, but they are suffering a lot of casualties along the way. A week and a half, two weeks ago, was the single bloodiest day of the war. To date, 24 Israelis were killed in that one day of fighting. And in all the while, while the United States is having its own soldiers killed and dozens more wounded, by the way, not the first time this has happened. It was right around Christmas time in late December that there was another Iran-funded attack from a militia in Iraq against a U.S. base in Iraq that struck the base, and there was a soldier there who, his brain injuries were so traumatic, he actually was put into a coma. They induced him into a coma. He actually just woke up from that coma about a week and a half, two weeks ago. So hardly the first time that we have had a tragedy of this magnitude. This is par for the course, unfortunately, for this most feckless and impotent of administrations. Which, again, you should view as simply the third term of the Barack Obama presidency, from Robert Malley and Wendy Sherman to John Kerry. They got the band back together, and let me tell you, the band was not very good to begin with during those first horrible eight years from 09 to 16. Unfortunately, what is happening in the Middle East from the 170-plus attacks on United States military installations to these slave-holding thugs, yes, the Houthi rebels literally own slaves, to everything happening in Gaza, the ramping up of the war in the Israeli north with Hezbollah, all of this, all of this is the easily foreseeable and all-too-predictable result of the Biden administration's completely inverted, morally and strategically perverse strategy with all things Middle East. For 50 or 60 years, it was widely accepted, bipartisan, standard foreign policy thinking that the United States would ally primarily with Israel and the more moderate Sunni Arab countries in the Middle East. Traditionally, from a United States perspective, that means Egypt, it means Jordan. In more recent years, it means the UAE and Bahrain, perhaps. And in very recent years, just over the past decade or so, that means Saudi Arabia. The Obama administration had the genius idea, the genius idea to flip all of that on its head, to alienate Israel and our Sunni Arab allies, the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi, and so forth and to appease the two enemies of all of those actors, primarily Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar being essentially a fill-in there for the Muslim Brotherhood, given how cozy that relationship is. The Biden administration has simply played along the exact same way. Recall the $6 billion ransom payment three to four or five months ago or so, to free a mere five U.S. hostages from Iran, $1.2 billion per hostage. Absolutely, absolutely insane stuff. Right now, the Biden administration is openly talking, like literally openly speculating, talking to the world as to what their response is going to look like to three American soldiers murdered, and yes, they are murdered, by an Iran-sponsored militia 
by an Iranian drone. U.S. intelligence has confirmed that the actual drone is of Iranian vintage. They are openly telegraphing for the world that they plan to strike Iranian targets inside Syria or Iraq, which makes sense on its own terms. We do not want to go bombing Tehran tomorrow. It's a bad idea. All-out war with Iran is a bad idea right now for the United States, for sure. Let's be very clear about that. But why would you just openly say that you're going to limit it to certain areas, Syria and Iraq? And to make matters worse, according to CBS, and this seems to have been a leak from the Biden administration, they are not only telegraphing the geographical location of where these strikes are going to be, they're literally saying they're going to only do it when the weather is clear. John Kirby, the administration's spokesman on these issues, has since doubled down on this. Let's be very clear. You have 170-plus attacks on U.S. military bases in the region. Three of your own men in uniform have died. And now you're saying to the enemy, to the world, out and open, that you're going to limit it to specific geographical areas. And oh, by the way, if it happens to be cloudy, don't worry about it. We're not going to strike. What is wrong with you? Do you not see that it is exactly your failure to exert any kind of deterrence posture whatsoever led us to this point. And to make matters even worse, to make matters even worse, because of domestic political concerns, especially Biden's trailing numbers in many of the nation's leading swing states, including but hardly limited to states like Michigan and Minnesota, where there are large Muslim and Arab American populations, Biden is really, really starting to turn the screws on Israel, the same time that he is openly telling the Iranians not to worry, he's only going to strike at certain times. Barack Ravid, the liberal reporter for Axios, who is well-connected in Democratic Party foreign policy circles, leaked this past week, probably straight from Tony Blinken himself, would be my guess as to the source of the leak, that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is formally asking the State Department to conduct a review and present policy options on possible United States and international recognition of a fully independent Palestinian state after the war in Gaza. So not only is the Biden administration appeasing Iran every way from Sunday, not only are they literally telling them where and when and under which weather conditions to expect any kind of response, the Biden administration simultaneously believes that the proper reward for Muslim Brotherhood Hamas jihadists who massacred 1,400 in a single day in October 7th is to reward these barbaric savages with an independent state. That is his grand idea. What exactly does this administration even contend to be its foreign policy in the Middle East? Ostensibly, the Obama administration's position was to, quote-unquote, recalibrate, was to bounce out America's sides of the scale that we were too heavily weighted towards Israel and the Sunni countries, and therefore we had to re-weight ourselves towards Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood. That ostensibly is the Biden administration's strategy as well. But at what point do you go from naivete and ignorance 
to malice and evil. It seems to me like the Biden administration has crossed that threshold. When you are talking here about openly failing to protect your own soldiers serving overseas, openly failing to care about your own citizens who were slaughtered on October 7th, and who, by the way, many of whom are still held hostage in those terror tunnels in Gaza, many U.S. citizens still remain there. When you're talking about leaving your naval ships in the Red Sea, totally in the line of fire from Houthi rebels, failure to deter on this level, appeasement and capitulation on this level to a fanatical Islamist regime in Tehran that chants death to America literally, I think you've crossed the line from sheer ignorance to outright malice and evil. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Republican presidential primary is over. Nikki Haley is Sticking around for the time being, she is currently down 26 points in the upcoming primary in her own state of South Carolina. If she chooses to, to stick around and get blown out in her home state, that I suppose is her prerogative. Not entirely clear what she is thinking, but for all intents and purposes, this thing is over. And What that means from our perspective is that it's time to start thinking about the general election. And you can't think about this upcoming general election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden without thinking about all of the various litigation and lawsuits that former and perhaps future president Donald Trump finds himself in. There really are too many lawsuits here to keep track of. We're expecting a ruling literally any day now from Justice Arthur and Goron in New York State. This is the civil fraud trial that New York State Attorney General Tish James has launched against the Trump organization. She's seeking $370 million in damages, just just an astonishing amount. Essentially, the allegation here is that the Trump organization has operated as a fraud by systematically undervaluing their properties, very much including Trump's residence in Palm Beach, Mar-a-Lago, and thereby securing bank loans and getting interest rates and all sorts of things like that on terms that are fraudulent. This this is a genuinely harrowing, chilling lawsuit, not just for Donald Trump, but for anyone, especially in New York State, because that's where it's playing out, who has any aspirations to entrepreneurship and small business. Think of, Think about what this means. If you are an aspiring entrepreneur or small business owner and the state power is being used to sue you, in this case, for upwards of $370 million simply because they deem that you have undervalued your property as if the banks don't have adequate appraisers on hand when they give out loans. Absolutely insane stuff. Upcoming this week as well, 
at the U.S. Supreme Court, there is a huge oral argument on Thursday, February 8th, pertaining to the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot because he is allegedly disqualified, they say, and the two law professors, William Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, said in a Law Review article last summer, because Trump allegedly committed insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and therefore he is disqualified, the Secretary of State of Maine, who is actually not even an elected official in Maine, she is appointed by the governor there, she independently arrived at the same conclusion, And now you're seeing this question play out in all the states. So the Supreme Court's finally going to hear an argument this Thursday on whether or not Donald Trump is actually disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It it is a frivolous, borderline laughable argument. I think it fails for at least four or five different reasons. First of all, the, the insurrection clause of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not what lawyers call self executing, put another way. It is the kind of thing that Congress would have to pass a very specifically worded statute on in in order to put concrete teeth to the broader, more amorphous terms used in the constitutional text. How do I know that? Because Justice Salmon Chase of the U.S. Supreme Court literally told us that in an opinion in 1869, a court case that was only one year after the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. So it's probably pretty good evidence as to what that term means. There are, there are any number of other problems with this argument. You also have to buy into the idea that January 6, 2021 was a quote-unquote insurrection in the sense that the draftsmen of the 14th Amendment meant that term, which means that it has to be analogous, at least from a legal perspective, to the literal insurrection that the 14th Amendment's drafters had in mind, which was the Confederacy, which was the four-year-long Confederate uprising with Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and all of all of these folks going up against Union and Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's totally backcrap insane stuff. It, it fails for other reasons as well. Anyway, we are expecting a hearing on that. They will expedite it on the so-called rocket docket at the U.S. Supreme Court. We will probably get a, a ruling on that in the not-so-distant future. I predict Trump's going to be off easily on this one. I, I think the argument is actually so frivolous that it's possible. It's 9-0 unanimous. I think it's most likely to be probably 7-2 to two with even the more sensible of the liberal justices, Elena Kagan, joining her more right-of-center colleagues on that particular ruling. There's all sorts of drama down in Georgia as well. You know, it's interesting when these four prosecutions, so there's four prosecutions, you have Alvin Bragg in New York City, Fonnie Willis in Georgia, and then two federal prosecutions. That's Jack Smith's special counsel prosecutions in both my state of Florida and in Washington, D.C. When all four of these dropped last year, I, like many others, thought that Georgia was probably the most dangerous of the four for any number of reasons. One is that Fulton County, Georgia is a very blue jurisdiction. You're not going to get a particularly fair jury pool there. Furthermore, you have a sprawling, very widely drafted RICO statute. That's the racketeering law that they're actually prosecuting Trump and his 18 other co-defendants on in Georgia. And to make matters worse, Georgia is a state going back to the 2020 election where you have a governor in Brian Kemp and a secretary of state in Brad Raffensperger, who, shall we say, are not exactly Trump's biggest fans in the world. So it's entirely possible that you could even get as witnesses the governor and secretary of state to testify against the former president. However, Trump, once again, looks like he might be the luckiest guy in the world because there has been 
so much scandal and topsy-turvy down there in Georgia. It was Trump's co-defendant, Michael Roman, who actually did a huge public service in exposing to the world that Fonnie Willis and the special prosecutor that she actually tapped to lead Trump's prosecution, a guy by the name of Nathan Wade, first of all, it appears that they have had a scandalous, illicit romantic relationship, which kind of reeks of corruption of the highest order. And furthermore, we actually now know that Fonnie Willis's DA office in Fulton County has been in close communication numerous times in what appears to be open naked collusion with the Biden White House counsel's office itself. So we're going to get a, an, an evidentiary hearing on February 15th there in Fulton County to see what will happen with that prosecution. As of Friday, actually, a bit of breaking news on Friday, the House Judiciary Committee just actually subpoenaed itself in Washington, D.C. They subpoenaed Fonnie Willis over her alleged misuse of public funds. The Friday prior to that, the Georgia State Senate also created a special committee with its own subpoena power. So they're going after Fonnie Willis in many different ways. And like I said, Trump in many ways could be the luckiest guy in the world here. He has some of the most cartoonish enemies imaginable. Say what you will about Donald Trump, and I was certainly a vocal supporter of Ron DeSantis in the primary on this show, but say what you will about Donald Trump, the man just, just has the most cartoonish enemies imaginable. Whether it's Fonnie Willis sleeping with the guy that she corruptly appointed to prosecute him, to this absolute loonbag E. Jean Carroll, who now has this absurd $83.3 million verdict in defamation damages. Trump's going to appeal that. He very well might end up getting off on it there. Trump is in better shape as of this exact moment with all of these legal dramas and lawfares than I would have anticipated he would have been in six to eight months ago, but he's got a very long way to go. And unfortunately, it is really starting to drain his campaign coffers dry. We will see where he can get that money from. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. It's Hammer Time. Utah has become the latest state in the country to ban DEI programs, the law that the state of Utah has passed prohibits any program, office, or initiative that has, quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion 
in its name or, quote, asserts that meritocracy is inherently racist or sexist. Overall, now, since the start of the year 2023, there have been at least 59 bills introduced that would roll back DEI efforts at colleges, such as hiring statements and mandatory trainings. And this includes both the states and the Congress. So this is just the latest example that the right continues to win on the issue of DEI. I don't necessarily think that Republicans should make this the issue that they run on this fall. I think that Republicans would be better served to focus on some of the more directly tangible bread and butter issues that affect your day-to-day life. Things like inflation, things like the fact that wages are not rising in real inflation-adjusted terms. The, the southern border is certainly a national issue. But having said that, this culture debate about diversity, about identity, about meritocracy, about equality versus equity, all these things we talk about on this show, the, the, you can't escape this debate. It's obviously going to come up on the campaign trail. It will certainly come up in the presidential election and will come up in all of, or at least many of the congressional and Senate races all across the country this fall. And Republicans should not be scared. They should not be scared to try to avoid this issue. Go ahead and take it head on. The polling that I have seen on this when it comes to DEI consistently shows that the American people are skeptical when they are told what it actually is. And that is the key part because most people and look, personally, I mean, I even have family members who fall into this category. They, they hear these lofty terms like diversity, equity, inclusion. Well, who in their right mind could oppose diversity, equity, and inclusion? So you actually have to explain then what is going on here. You have to explain that what DEI actually means when it is in a corporate bureaucratic setting or in a university administration setting or in any other institutional setting that has these programs and these initiatives, you have to explain that what that means in practice is that you are picking winners and losers. You are choosing to make promotional and demotional decisions. You are choosing to make acceptance decisions. You are choosing to dole out grants and awards and do any of these other sorts of substantive decision makings based on the race, sex, or some other sort of vague identity description of the underlying individual. It's fundamentally un-American, and it comes back to this late motif that we discuss on this show as to which conception of the American regime do you actually want. They should put that on the ballot this fall. It was on the ballot to an extent in 2020 as well, after the Black Lives Matter and Tifa protests that roiled the country that whole year. Put it back on the ballot again this fall. Yes, make the economy and illegal immigration, the border, make that the focus. But when it comes up, Embrace it. Say that you can have equality in the 1776 Civil Rights Act of 1964 sense, the true sense of American equality, or you can have this garbage, garbage, fundamentally racialist equity. That is a good issue for Republicans to run on this fall, for sure. Next, the NIH, as if the NIH had any more credibility that it could possibly squander after what happened over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. They're trying to go even further now. They're trying to squander what little credibility and legitimacy they have left. What are they doing? They're awarding $200,000 or more accurately, almost $214,000 for researchers to create a transgender voice training app. Yes, you heard that right. This is an app that allegedly is going to help in cases where a person's voice does not match their gender identity. Oh, God forbid. Listen to this. They are calling the project, quote, 
improving the accessibility of transgender voice training with visual acoustic biofeedback. Well, that's quite a mouthful to put it mildly here. And what they're aiming to do, according to their own words, they're trying to improve, quote, gender affirming voice and communication training with software that will coach trans women. And by trans women, they just mean biological men that will coach them on their pitch and re- look, look, this is just a total and complete utter story of of, of pure stinking rotting feces um, i have nothing but horrible things to say whatsoever about this this is one of the more egregious examples that you will ever come by of the federal government putting your taxpayer dollars to the absolute worst possible use and you know what the government could be doing instead They could be doing actually what my state, the state of Florida, reiterated that it is doing when it comes to driver's license, which is the state of Florida actually just affirmed within the past week, this is going viral on social media, they just affirmed that when it comes to choosing your sex on driver's license, that you are not allowed, as a matter of Florida law, to choose the sex that matches your quote-unquote subjective gender identity if your gender identity is not the same as your biological sex. Put another way, when it comes to driver licenses in Florida, you actually have to choose your biological sex. You do not have an option to say that you are a male if you are a biological female and vice versa. The NIH obviously is doing the exact opposite. This is exactly the sort of thing that should be cut on day one of the next Republican administration, hopefully come January 2025. It's also just a reminder when you juxtapose these two stories, this outrageous waste of taxpayer resources for the NIH and this story out of Florida with the driver's license. It's also just a reminder that you have to choose. This is the imperative of the statesman's choice. There is no such thing as a neutral way out. As a statesman, when you are making public policy and crafting law, you cannot be neutral on the question as to whether a biological man can cut off his penis and become a a woman. You cannot be neutral on the question as to whether a vulnerable 13-year-old girl who is facing the predations of big pharma and the medical lobby as to whether she can have a double mastectomy of her young, healthy breasts and therefore she's been... No, you cannot be neutral on this. Public policy and the law has to take a side. I would humbly submit, I think most conservatives would humbly submit, that side has to be the side that reflects natural God-given truth. Three years after decriminalization, Oregon frets over drug use. So hard drugs were decriminalized in Oregon three years ago. This is a story that made a lot of headlines at the time. And there are no arrests, just the fine and a card with a telephone number where the user can get help, where if you are using hard drugs in Oregon alone, there were 956 fatal overdoses in 2022. That number tripled, tripled over the course of three years. 2023 was well on pace to smash that grim record. That's the last year for which we have some data, 2024, too early yet. I mean, how many more examples do we need that drug decriminalization and legalization simply does not work? I mean, not only does it not work, in many ways it is actually, I would say, outright evil. When you look at drug overdose deaths in America, after the 12 years of Reagan and President George H.W. Bush, drug overdose deaths in America reached a low of between five and 6,000 deaths annually, which was a shocking, shocking drop from its peak 
in the late 1970s under then-President Jimmy Carter. The last year here for which we have data on drug overdose deaths in America now, fast-forwarding to the present time, 110,000. And all across the country, you know, I was in Providence, Rhode Island, actually, in November. I, I was there to give a couple of law school lectures there in Connecticut and Rhode Island. And I was killing time working at a coffee shop before I headed to the airport for my flight. And I went to use the bathroom. And I looked to my right while I was washing my hands. And you know what's on the wall of the bathroom? A drug overdose reversal kit was right there on the bathroom of this random coffee shop in Providence, Rhode Island. I think back to when Lori Lightfoot was the mayor of Chicago. Funny enough, the current nut job is actually even worse than her, God forbid. But when Lori Lightfoot was the mayor of Chicago, there was a story a couple of years ago in 2022, I think it was, where they were hosting the big Lollapalooza music festival there as they do every year in Chicago. And the Chicago Police Department under Mayor Lightfoot's guidance was saying that you should inject safely if you were trying to inject yourself with hard drugs. I mean, oxymoron much? It's, it's just evil. This stuff should not be decriminalized. There should be extraordinarily hard penalties. That is the only way whatsoever, the only way to get back to the just say no, this is your brain on drugs reversal of the 1970s era drug overdose deaths and try to get it back again to that low point of 1992. Finally, it appears that the U.S. guardrail system can't actually handle EVs. So I didn't know this. Apparently, EVs typically weigh 20 to 50% more than gas-powered vehicles, and they have lower centers of gravity. Genuinely did not know that. Probably something that I should that I should have known there, but there's a new study from the University of Nebraska that indicates that the nation's guardrails on, on the roadways and highways are ill-equipped to handle EVs for the very simple reason that they weigh typically thousands of pounds, much more than the average gas-powered car. You know, it seems to me like the kind of thing that we probably should have thought through before the federal government and many state governments went above and beyond to try to subsidize the mass purchase and consumption of these things. Wouldn't we want to make sure that they had a modicum of safety, that they were compatible with existing infrastructure? I mean, how about for that matter, making sure that we had enough charging stations all throughout the country? There was an article last summer, it was pretty amusing, in the Wall Street Journal about someone who tried to take like a 1,000 or 1,500-mile drive in an electric vehicle just to see what the experience was like. I mean, was he scared of running out of power? How long would it take to charge? And the verdict was, was terrible. He basically said that it sucked. He basically said that it was a miserable experience and that U.S. infrastructure as it currently exists is not equipped to actually handle EVs on the scale that the government wants us to buy them because it's good for the environment or climate change or, or whatever we're calling it these days. So the, the, this story with the guardrails is, is just the latest indication that when it comes to policymaking in this country, unfortunately, our policymakers are not focused on what they should be focused on. They are simply focused, in this case, on appeasing the green lobby and the pagan idolatry, the modern pagan idolatry that is the climate change hysteria agenda. Mm -hmm.